Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. For the members of Seattle's grunge scene, the question was, after you've conquered the world, what do you do for an encore? You are listening to Breaking Waves, Seattle. The story of the scene that defined rock in the 90s. In the late 90s, Seattle was a city still feeling the after-effects of the grunge boom and finding its way forward. Barstook Records owner Josh Rosenfeld. I felt through the mid-90s and into when Barsook started, which I guess was officially in 1998, like there were a lot of bad rock bands kind of following in the footsteps of the great rock bands that had brought attention to Seattle. Maybe it was more a reaction against the ascendancy of those bands that this kind of postmodern sub-genre of what I think of as indie rock was developing. I think Built to Spill and Elliot Smith and his band Heat Miser, which had been around and overlapped with the grunge era, but felt different from Soundgarden and Pearl Jam and Nirvana. Those were the artists in Seattle and in the Northwest that were most inspiring to me at that time. Indie rock as a genre, distinct from grunge, was gaining ground as a musical force. In some ways, it was a direct response to the Seattle sounds that set the pace earlier in the decade. Josh Rosenfeld. What I think of as indie rock, which was different from grunge, it was kind of this post-punk singer-songwriter-y different vibe. 
records being put out by Up Records. CZ had put out Beltus Bill's first album. Bands like Pavement and Slint, they were still guitar bands, but there was much less rock with an AW vibe. Indie rock, as distinct from grunge, had to do with if grunge was related to that kind of snarky sub-pop, oh, we're all losers, fuck everything type of a vibe, um, I feel like some artists started to diverge from that and have more of kind of an introspective or maybe even more intellectual take on what songs were about. And Nirvana and Melvin's were totally embracing rock tropes in some ways, musically speaking, at least. Heavy, pounding, distorted guitars and drums and bass. And I guess the injection of subtlety was important to the kinds of bands I'm thinking about the idea of postmodernism and kind of deconstructing and reassembling things is probably an important part of that. Seattle was in the midst of a sea change. Grunge was dead. The flyers of the flannel had to find their kicks someplace else. America was turning its ears to other sounds. Hip-hop was bigger than ever, and electronic music had emerged as a major force. Alternative rock branched out into a million directions, from emo to post-rock and beyond. But the Seattle scene kept evolving and remained very much a part of the musical conversation. In 1997, Harvey Danger's flagpole Sitta made that band a key component of what was next for the city. Josh Rosenfeld. Harvey Danger were clearly a non-grunge band from Seattle who were inspired by Pavement and Sebado and some of these indie rock bands who had a mainstream commercial radio hit. And I think Harvey Danger were probably pretty pivotal in kind of keeping the momentum going in terms of national attention on Seattle and the Northwest. They're kind of the link if you're looking at it purely from a perception standpoint, Harvey Danger are probably the link between grunge and kind of the next wave of popular artists that came from here, which would be like Death Cab for Cutie and Modest Mouse and that next band of very clearly not grunge artists who were drawing attention in Seattle. The End is, I believe, the first station that played Harvey Danger. 1077 The End, KNDDDJ, Marco Collins. Harvey Danger, that record's one of my favorite records of all time. I wanted to release that record on my own label, but I remember taking that song and thinking, this is a perfect pop record. This is just fantastic. And putting that song on the air and getting the reaction that I thought it might have, you never know what's going to really tick. I loved Harvey Danger. I think that that entire thing is a 90s masterpiece. With their goofy sense of humor and ear-catching hits like Peaches and Lump, the presidents of the United States of America were also an early indicator of where Seattle rock could go after grunge. Marco Collins. That was another band that the end started playing when it was an independent record on Pop Llama. 
Those songs were so simple and so scrappy and awesome that I never would have thought that they would be as big as they ended up being. Never would have thought that Lump would become a number one single at Alternative and then go on to be huge at pop radio. I never would have thought this song about peaches would be the kind of anthemic song that it is that recently has had a resurgence. The Foo Fighters debuted around the same time. With Dave Grohl as their frontman, they still had ties to grunge, but they undeniably went their own way. 1077 The End, KNDD, got in early on that action too. We helped break Foo Fighters. We definitely were the first people to play Foo Fighters. That first record's still one of my favorite records from the Foo Fighters. The two first records from that band, to me, are still the best things that have come out, or at least they're my favorites. We were instrumental in breaking the Foo Fighters, of course. We played the fuck out of those songs. In the early 2000s, Death Cab for Cutie from Bellingham, about 90 minutes north of Seattle, emerged as one of America's most influential indie rock bands. Before releasing their records on Barsook, Josh Rosenfeld played in This Busy Monster, which was how he met them in 1997. Josh Rosenfeld. I think Harvey Danger must have gotten in touch with Death Cab and invited them to come play a show in Seattle. There was a show that happened at the Crocodile that Harvey Danger headlined and Death Cab for Cutie played and this busy monster was on the bill. We used to just go up and play shows in Bellingham and they would come to Seattle and play shows here. And at some point, we kind of just had a conversation with Elsinore about helping Death Cab to release their first full album that they recorded as a full band. Marco Collins. I'm a big Death Cab fan. I just thought Death Cab was the perfect pop band. They weren't aggressive. They were an about face to the aggressive side of the scene. They had different energy, and I, I loved it. I thought it was amazing. And talk about a band that I was able to watch their evolution. I was playing them on their first record. And I remember thinking, Ben has a really unique voice. Death Cab reminded me of some of the more pop stuff of the 80s. Some of the stuff that I really liked, like Felt or the Go-Betweens. Josh Rosenfeld. I remember thinking that sonically, they were like a sort of lo-fi-ish version of influences that included probably the Posies, probably R.E.M., definitely not any real sign of grunge happening there. There was something about the way that Ben approached melody that just felt totally classic and totally immediate in the vein of power pop like the Posies or Teenage Fan Club or Big Star or something, but a combination of the production and just the way that 
he approached it, it added in a kind of folkiness to it. It reminded me of Elliot Smith's solo records, but it definitely had that aspect of not just being straightforward, that kind of postmodern aspect. While Barsook was establishing itself as a label that would help move Seattle forward, Sub Pop was pivoting away from grunge and moving in a multitude of different directions, like the lo-fi sounds of Sebado and the Grifters, the post-emo attack of Sunny Day Real Estate, and the Neo Lounge of Combustible Edison. But in the new millennium, they'd become influencers all over again, with bands like Beach House, Iron and Wine, The Shins, Postal Service, Fleet Foxes, Father John Misty, and The Head and the Heart. Hammerbox singer Carrie Ockrey. You can't just put out Mud Honey or whatever forever. You know what I mean? You're just going to want something a little bit new. So, what would be new that would still fit? Postal Service. That's interesting. I mean, when that came out, it wasn't 1991. It was time for something new. Seattle DJ Kathy Fennessy. I think they were trying to diversify pretty early. But I knew Jonathan. I've met Bruce, but I certainly don't know him very well. I think their personal taste was pretty eclectic. Um, They were never all grunge all the time. And Jonathan had played in local bands, so he was a musician as well as a promoter. And he'd been on the scene in different ways. But yeah, I think their personal taste was eclectic from the start. And occasionally, Sub Pop would sign very non-grungy sounding bands. CZ Records owner Daniel House. Early on, if you're a small label trying to sort of establish something for yourself, having a consistency of voice and a consistency of brand is probably really smart. But, you know, if you do it forever and ever, eventually it starts to become a one-trick pony. I think the fact that they branched out has been fantastic. I think it made them a more interesting label in the big picture. If anything, it just seems like they evolved over time, which is what any record label should do. It's, It's what we as people should do. So I've always applauded them. I've I've always actually been really happy that they managed to establish themselves and get to where they are now through so many years, through so many decades. It's pretty impressive. Josh Rosenfeld. I think Sub Pop distributed up. Chris Tacchino and Pete, who ran that label, were signing Hush Harbor and Incredible Force of Junior and kind of expanding out from those kind of like inverted metal vibes that grunge exhibited. Sub Pop Records co-founder Jonathan Poneman. It's a record collection, really. And I mean, I don't think that anybody's record collection is all one thing, you know? Similarly, You don't just, I mean, I guess there are people out there that, you know, all they listen to is 107.7, the end. But my guess is, is that people jump around the dial, you know, depending on what their mood and how they're feeling. And with the Sub Pop records, it's the same thing. You know, sometimes I'm, you know, really into the Postal Service. Other times I'm, you know, hearkening back to uh, the golden age of cat butt. Uh, The other times I'm listening to Combustible Edison. Other times I'm listening to Mud Honey, you know. The whole thing. I think that there is a time and space for every sub-hop record. That's why everybody should own everything. Hi, this is Carrie from Seattle. The end is coming today at 3 o'clock. Some things hadn't changed since the early 90s, though. 
you still needed a solid regional bedrock of radio and clubs to help new bands take off. Epic Records promoter Debbie Lippitz. I worked all over the country at various times in my life, mostly in the Pacific Northwest, but the Seattle radio stations are the heart and soul, I think, of this country. They are creative, they are ambitious, they're trying to figure out what's next, but the people that have grown up in the Northwest in particular, like Ryan Castle, who's the program director now of KISW, and even Leslie Scott, who came from, an, I think, St. Louis to Seattle. I mean, these are some of the finest executives and music people that I've ever met. I'd like to say it's the same way in all these other cities I've worked in, but there's just something about Seattle, you know? Duff McKagan of Guns N' Roses understood the power of Seattle radio before he even started playing in the city's punk rock bands in the late 70s. The cool thing about Seattle, we have a killer rock station that will delve into the local scene and play bands. And if you go to other parts in the country, you hear the rock radio station just play the same fucking six songs, you know? And KSW's just always played like kind of what they want to play. And since I was, I don't know, 13 and 14 years old, and when I say I went and saw the police and the jam for a dollar, that was a KSW show, you know? Paid for the show and charged people a dollar just so they could go see these cool rising stars. Josh Rosenfeld. Green River Community College had a station. Of course, there was KEXP, previously KCMU, and there was The End, KNDD. And there felt, I think, like a real ecosystem there, too, of DJs at college radio stations all around this area where there were college students who were spending a lot of time and energy seeking out local Northwest talent and playing it on the air. And as artists got bigger, Marco and Jason Hughes would play music on KNDD on the end. And sometimes those things would kind of catch people's imagination and start building national audience. And it sort of seemed to flow. And it worked in tandem with the club scene, the Crocodile Cafe and all ages clubs like Paradox and the Velvet Elvis and Rock Candy. There were just a lot of opportunities for local artists to try stuff out and a lot of support from local retail, Easy Street and Sonic Boom, and all of that stuff worked together in a really great way. Even if the scene that rose out of Seattle post-grunge didn't sound like what came before, it was undeniably enabled by the trails that were blazed in the early 90s. Record executive Michael Goldstone. We can all analyze what that moment in time between those five or six or seven bands did to rock music and alternative music and in some ways, you know, sort of ended a certain era. And it influenced a lot of other bands. It created a platform, I think, in some ways for an incredible output of authentic music, heartfelt music, painful music sometimes. So I think it had a profound impact as a transmitter of freedom and expression and not being boxed in artistically and creatively. In terms of what you wore, what you sang, what you sang about, how you lived, that was a cultural moment. Easy Street Records proprietor Matt Vaughn. 
I also saw where new up and coming acts were influenced by it. Now they may not be influenced by the music necessarily, but they were certainly influenced by the ethos of it all. You know, even an Isaac Brock from Modest Mouse or Ben Gibbard would tell you that. No surprise, Brandy Carlisle did two Soundgarden cover songs last year. Josh Rosenfeld. I think creatively, it was probably helpful. Good to have a lot of good small venues that artists could play in and develop their songs. Good to have a community that had built up as a lot of us were finishing college or dropping out of college and deciding to be musicians. And without the explosion of grunge, I think that even just the structural elements of that wouldn't have been there to sustain that kind of scene and that kind of community. Even economically, separate from the creative environment that was created by grunge, I think it's probably true even that a lot of us benefited from that infrastructure. Most cities in the U.S. don't have multiple great indie record stores. Most cities in the U.S. don't have multiple really great radio stations. Remember the times you said you loved me, baby. Inclusivity across race, gender, and sexual orientation is the common theme connecting the bands who are raising the roofs in Seattle clubs today. There are more people of color getting into the act than ever before, and women are an important part of the mix too. The Black Tones, Aaron Jones, Shayna Shepard and Barax, The Black Ends, King Youngblood, they all represent the rocking side of a region with a fresh take on the city's sonic legacy. Duff McKagan, I just know what's going on in Seattle right now with Aaron Jones here. He's just a killer songwriter. The first show I saw him play, it was like going to church. The whole room was in it together. It was packed, and you just kind of ebbed and flowed with how the songs were going and what Aaron was doing and what the drummer and bass player were doing. It was amazing. Marco Collins. Oh, Aaron's massive. I love the fact that he has a number one rock hit, and he's the nicest human being you could ever meet. Seattle hip-hop legend Sir Mix-a-Lot. Aaron Jones is like a little brother to me. I'm looking at a black kid doing rock in Seattle. Hello! You know what I mean? I'm like, I'm getting chills thinking about it. So I kind of outfitted my studio with some stuff and tried the best I could to give him a record. I said, we got to get this to people that do rock. I just got out of the way. I don't need no credit because I didn't do anything. He'll tell you I did, but I didn't do anything. I just helped them to make one record so they can learn how to make records. That's why when you asked me about up and coming, I didn't say him because I've always thought he was already there. Aaron Jones. I think it had a, a huge impact. I think Seattle had a huge impact on my development as a young man, for sure. The culture of music in Seattle and this legacy had a huge impact on my sound and how I wanted to represent myself in the music industry, for sure. When I think about the, the 90s grunge era, what I saw, and I remember a conversation I had with Barrett Martin as we were producing my second indie project, and you know he really broke it down to me as to what we were experiencing here in the Northwest. This was the resurgence of the blues and interpreted through these guys that were, that were hardcore metal and punk. So I think that that's kind of what the link that you can find directly in my music is a lot of, a lot of that blues influence, but also a lot of that, that punk rock, a lot of that heavy, simple kind of sound. And then also like that unhinged, untethered sound, you know, when you get the feedback and the distortion, the string scraping, all those things you can harken back to that Seattle sound. Black Tone's front woman, Eva Walker. 
I was born in 89, so I was real young during the 90s. But my um, older brother and older sister, when you're that young, you kind of listen to whatever your siblings are listening to. And my sister was the one who was really in the sound garden. She loved Chris Cornell. So I was introduced to them through her. And she listened to quite a bit of Pearl Jam as well. And so just kind of hearing these throughout the house. And then, of course, Nirvana. It wasn't until high school, though, that I was introduced to Alice in Chains. They actually, and even till this day, have actually become my favorite grunge band. Just because of the soul that's in Lane Staley's singing. Our debut record's called Cobain and Cornbread. And what that actually represents is being first-generation Seattleites. My grandma's house felt like a mini New Orleans. But we grew up in the cloudy, grungy Northwest. We're Northerners raised by Southerners. Cobain and Cornbread. That's the best way I can put it. It's like we wear our flannel while eating gumbo or we headbang while eating red beans and rice. Aaron Jones. I feel like I'm just one of a whole movement of people that's happening right now. I mean, this is kind of grunge resurgence thing happening right now, but it's kind of revamped, you know, and it's it's really coming from people of color in Seattle, man. And that's what's really cool is we're seeing kind of like this resurgence of grunge, but interpreted through the black community here in Seattle. This is really interesting mix of soul and blues and a lot of the influences of black American music being infused into this grunge sound now. I may be the elder statesman of this sound, but it's out there. And I think, you know, there's going to be some cats coming up right behind me. I think of uh, a band called Bear Axe. It's led by Shayna Shepard. I think of the Black Tones, which is led by Eva Walker and Cedric Walker, her brother. I listen to King Youngblood, which is led by Cameron Lavery Jones. The Black Chevys, the Black Ends. I mean, these are all groups in Seattle that are interpreting this grunge music and bringing it back in this new era with a, a bit of soul, you know, which is really awesome to see. And it's happening right here, man. This is kind of this classic rock resurgence happening. There's a lot of 90s babies that are growing up in Seattle that grew up right in the thick of that movement right now. And for some reason or another, it's bleeding out of their pores, man. Eva Walker. As a young rocker, I was in my room not showing anybody any of this because I was told I couldn't do this. So I think a lot of us were just in our rooms. And then, you know, as more representation was presented to us in rock and roll music, we were like, yeah, we can do that shit too. We're going to do it. And we all just started to get out of our bedrooms and start our bands and start to do our thing. Aaron Jones. And they're calling it blues rock, which is a term that like I use loosely because anytime a black person tends to pick up a guitar and, and play classic rock, it tends to be termed as blues rock. But I think you're going to see this big bluesy grunge kind of movement happening here in the next five to 10 years. Sir Mix-a-Lot. There's a lot of things happening in the city and it's colorblind now. People aren't going to African-American artists or white. They don't care. It's what type of music do you do? You know, and, and I think that is far more weighty than just going, oh, it's a black group that does rock. I'm glad to say that's not a new thing anymore. Thank goodness. Karyocri also sees female empowerment as a major part of the current scene. I think what is so much more prevalent and possible in the music scene is individual female artists of a wide spectrum, be it LGBTQ to there's a huge push to recognize and have leadership in the black community as well. 
I never saw something quite like this with individual female artists like Julia Francis, um, Krista Fisher, where these are like women being allowed to embrace their beauty in a way that is empowering or their sexiness, things like that. That's not happening everywhere. Like Shayna Shepard and her beauty, and she's in the band Barrax, which is a rock band. Marco Collins. Shayna's massive. Shayna is going to be a huge star. Um, the fact that she is this sort of soulful singer in a rock band with Barrax is such a cool combo. But she's got solo stuff. I honestly believe she's going to be the next thing out of this scene. Black tones are phenomenal too. Eva's one of my dear friends. They're wild to watch, and it's cool to see women coming out of this scene. Duff McKagan. Shannon Shepard. She's got a record coming out. I uh, got to play on a few songs of hers. She's a super rad young woman that I'm behind 100%. Soundgarden guitarist Kim Thile. One of the singers I worked with was a girl named Shana Shepard, who's a great rock singer, and her band is called Bear Axe. I met her a couple of years ago when we were doing a Neil Young tribute, a number of bands. And uh, so we had her singing a couple of Alice in Chains songs and it was great meeting her and great getting to work with her. When Breaking Waves returns, members of Seattle's Old Guard are again visited by darkness. But as always, the scene gathers itself and carries on. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The rock world lost one of its more honest voices this weekend when Alice in Chains frontman Lane Staley was found dead in his Seattle home on Friday. He was 34. Soundgarden frontman Chris Cornell was found dead inside a Detroit hotel room. Now that incident May 18th at the MGM Grand after the Soundgarden concert. In the new millennium, there was more heartbreak ahead for lovers of the old school Seattle music scene. Continuing the pattern of the city saying goodbye to its rock stars way too soon, we lost Lane Staley to drugs in April of 2002 and Chris Cornell to suicide in May 2017. Kathy Fennessy. Chris Cornell continuing to tour and continuing to make music, but then dealing with his depression the whole time, which a lot of us didn't know about. I'm not saying that being on a major label or touring or any of those things caused his death, but I don't think the touring helped in his case because you really have to put on a show and be present and give yourself to other people when maybe you're not really taking care of yourself as best you can. Daniel House. That one completely took the wind out of me and took the knees out from under me. When Chris died, I think for a lot of us old timers, we really had reached a point where we felt that we were done with this that we finally had kind of gotten past any more deaths of any of our brothers or sisters. And then that thing just, it felt so out of left field. KISW DJ, Kathy Faulkner. 
There's the sad memories of losing Kurt and the day we lost Lane and the day we lost Chris. Those are impermeated in my brain like, you know, the day the we lost the shuttle or the day that, you know, Armstrong set his first foot on the moon. After losing Lane Staley, Alice and Chains beat the odds by reinventing themselves with a dynamic new singer, William Duvall, Kathy Faulkner. Alice and Chains continued on, and I got to help produce a free show at the Moore Theater to introduce their new lead singer. And then shortly after, we got Black Gives Way to Blue. And it warmed my heart that for all of the highs and the lows that we all experienced, that we can still go forth musically. Charles Cross. They have a great singer, and he's just an awesome person. And the band still is pretty damn good live. I mean, they're great. They're not good. They're great live band. Daniel House. I think this version of Alice in Chains with William Duvall is quite amazing. I think their records are fantastic. I've been very happy with their resurgence. Duff McKagan. I'm just really good friends with Sean and Jerry. They had found William. And for them to make that decision to retry it again with a new singer was a big thing. And more than anything else, I kind of came into the band as a friend of theirs to show support and that I believed in. I think William's great. I played like, I don't know, eight shows with them at the beginning of the William era. I played rhythm guitar. Then they discovered William's a much better guitar player than me. I was out. The biggest of the batch are far from the only Seattle survivors, though. Duff McKagan. The Melvins, those guys have just kicked ass for so long. And I'm sure if you were to ask Buzz about did the business kill, you know, this or that or the other, he'd probably just shake his head like, what the fuck are you talking about? You know, I'm just writing that next song. Mark Iverson. It feels like there's a ton of music going on in Seattle. A number of people who were around back then are still putting out great things. Tom Price, who was in Gas Supper and the U-Men, has the Tom Price Desert Classic. He has a great record out. Tad Doyle put out a record as Brothers of the Sonic Cloth. That's amazing. So I feel like a lot of people are still active and still doing things. For all the casualties incurred along the way, though, some of the stalwarts of Seattle's old guard are still charging hard to this day, keeping the spirit of the old school scene alive and taking it to new places. Mark Yarm. Should be noted that grunge never truly died. I mean, Mud Honey's still around, the Melvins are still around, Pearl Jam's still around, Allison Chains is back, and newish singer. <laughs> I mean, it's been quite a number of years. The Foo Fighters, who emerged from Nirvana, of course, are still around. You know, Chris Novoselic has his own band, Giants in the Trees. You know, all these people are still producing music. It is remarkable that of the four big grunge bands, three of their lead singers were, you know, really outsized figures are dead now. I mean, Kurt and Lane and now Chris, Eddie Vedder's the sole survivor of those big four, for sure. It's kind of a chilling legacy, I think. Photographer Karen Mason Blair. I think it's a terrible burden sometimes to Eddie Vedder in particular. Being the surviving singer, I don't wish that upon anybody, but he's doing a good job. Debbie Lippitz. 
I don't think they ever lost their soul. I mean, they grew up, but yeah, I love watching the evolution of that band. Mark Yarm. Talking to someone like Chris Cornell about the whole issue of fame, he pointed out to me that Nirvana didn't have to put out in utero, didn't have to put out those videos. He said, look at the example of Pearl Jam. They pulled back. They stopped making videos. They stopped doing press. They stopped doing all this stuff for their own sanity. In his view, that's why Pearl Jam basically went on to thrive, whereas Nirvana imploded. Michael Goldstone. I think they had the experience and the instinct to not allow people to run faster with it than it was meant to run. I think they had restraint. I think that they made choices that at the time felt short-sighted, but have proved to be the reasons why they've had the longevity that they've had. Karyakri. I think one of the only bands that was literally prepared to like have a career was Pearl Jam. I mean, those are smart people. I think they had great management. Like they had a combination that was built to last and they thought about it and they were awake. They were like, yeah, it's hard. I'm young and I'm having all the issues of that kind of trajectory of success. But they had either themselves and their management had enough in place to gear up for that ride. Jeff Trisler. The ones that stick around and have legs, I have nothing but endless admiration for. I mean, you look at a band like Pearl Jam, good God. I mean, they just stuck to their guns. They did what they did. They didn't worry about making MTV videos. Record deal was up. They decided to make their own records. And now they're bigger than ever. And they play stadiums all over the United States, all over Europe. They can do whatever they want, whenever they want to. Because they stayed true to what they do. Foo Fighters, another one. Huge admiration for those artists that stay true to what they do, and they still have an audience that cares. Sir Mix-a-Lot. Pearl Jam, I went to a show to see them at the Key Arena. I don't know. We went to the first, second, third, or fourth show. I don't know. But a lot of people couldn't get in. And if I remember correctly, I don't know if it was the next day or a few days later, they went down the street to the show box and did another show for some people that couldn't get in. Class. Class personified. I think Pearl Jam gets it. They understand the importance of their fans. You take the era from the time I started to now in Seattle, I don't see anybody standing above Pearl Jam. They seem to keep making the right decisions. It took a while for the pendulum to swing back around. But in recent years, there's been an upswing of new bands that wear their grunge influences proudly. Just as the Brits were early adopters of the Seattle sound back in the day, the UK has raised a fresh crop of homegrown young bands with some Seattle in their DNA, like Dinosaur Pileup, Pulled Apart by Horses, Yuck, and Hana. And given the economics, it may actually be up to our UK brethren to carry the torch. With the way gentrification has changed the game in Seattle, the odds sure seem to be against a local music scene rising up to a massive level. Yeah, I think that's kind of made it so that we'll probably never have a grunge-type scene ever again. Seattle's so expensive at this point. It's not San Francisco expensive, but it's still too expensive, I think, to give birth to that kind of scene again. So, yeah, it really was a right place, right time kind of thing.
to some of those who experience the thrill of rock and roll capturing the world's imagination on a grand scale like the Seattle bands did in the 90s, a future without new rock stars seems increasingly likely. Charles Cross. At that point, you felt like music was being reinvented, and I'm being specific within rock. I felt that there would be other scenes and other ideas that would change rock. But in a way, my argument as a critic is rock has not really moved on from that. There hasn't been another thing. Hip hop has certainly taken over as the dominant music genre, but rock hasn't had another act. I wrote something once and I called Kurt Cobain the last rock star and people went crazy and were pissed off and said I was overstating it. And I'm like, he's the last rock star of a kind of generation. I sure hope there's another but I haven't seen it. Josh Rosenfeld. In some ways it feels like maybe grunge was like the last great expression of rock music as a cultural leader of what mainstream pop music is. Jeff Trisler. It was really cool to see new rock bands happening at that point. And, you know, in hindsight, it was kind of like the last great hurrah of rock and roll. I mean, I joke about it with people from time to time who are still working with those bands, you know, the Pearl Jams, the Tools, the Foo Fighters. There just isn't a lot coming up that's new and fresh in the rock genre, you know, electronic, hip hop, tons and tons and tons of new music happening every day. But, you know, rock and roll, not so much. It's my hope that we're going to see real rock bands come in, people that actually have been practicing how to play the guitar and play the drums, play the bass, and write songs. I hope that we see a renaissance of that music. Aaron Jones. I think rock will never die in this town, though. I think this town is always going to be a rock and roll town for the rest of time. There's no Kurt Cobain. There's no Eddie Van Halens. There's no superstar standouts in rock and roll these days. We got further and further away from the roots of rock and roll. And I think that that is why we began to see the pendulum swing. And anytime you notice the pendulum coming back to rock and roll, it's because the roots are being brought back up. When Breaking Waves returns, with a reverence for their storied past, the members of Seattle's music community look ahead and see the beginnings of the city's next breaking wave. Though known for grunge, the sound of Seattle today is about a lot more than rock and roll. Hip-hop, jazz, electronic music, pop, R&B. It's all part of what the city sounds like right now. Kathy Fennessy. I think it's just more of an eclectic scene we had the Decibel Festival, which focused on local electronic acts, but also brought a lot of national and international electronic acts to town. So definitely that scene is still big here. But there's a DJ at KEXP, Alex Ruder, who has a label, Hush Hush, Delvon Lamar Organ Trio. Those guys are really good. They're doing kind of Jimmy Smith type organ instrumentals. Promoter Jeff Trisler. Well, Head and the Heart are really happening, but you know, it kind of falls more in that singer-songwriter genre than a, a straight-up rock band. Marco Collins. It's all over the map, man. There's a lot of fantastic hip-hop and R&B going on, and a lot of electronic artists in the scene that I think are phenomenal. 
you know who else I think is phenomenal is Travis Thompson. He's a rapper in the scene. I love car seat headrests too. They're also one of my favorites. You know who's gonna be huge that nobody knows about yet that I'm so excited about? She's from Marysville up here in Washington. Uh, her name is Payday. She's 16. She might be 17 by now. Look her up because she's starting to blow up on her own. She's got a crazy social media following. She's a rapper and she is fierce and we're starting to embrace her on KXP right now. Django, hip hop producer. He's working with Frank Ocean. He's working with a million people, but Django is living here now and God, I love that guy as well. Matt Vaughn. There's a band called Monster Watch that I really like. There's a band called Spirit Award that I really like. There's a jazz cat named Casa Overall who I really like. You know, we've had Light in the Attic, Barsook. There's a lot of seven-inch labels that are starting up. There's a serious Riot Girl movement that is starting up all over again. There's a younger female generation that is in their teens that have a lot to say. And there's a lot that they're pissed off about. Some of these girls work at Easy Street. So I can sense from my experience to look out for that. Eva Walker. I feel like rock is still up there, but also like hip hop and electronic music. Like Chong the Nomad is just taking the freaking city by storm. She's incredible. And R&B artists like Paris Alexa also taking the city by storm. For a while, people weren't taking like Northwest hip hop that seriously, even though it was incredible. You know, you have Diggable Planet, you have Sir Mix-a-Lot, you have Blue Scholars. But right now you have Travis Thompson, who's incredible. And you have Aesop Rock and, oh gosh, I mean, Shabazz Palaces, which is Ishmael's newer project after Digable Planets. And um, New Track City is a sibling hip-hop duo who I love. Sir Mix-a-Lot. I really like what Travis Thompson, he's positioned in a way that none of us ever were before him. And what I mean by that, I wasn't really a freestyle cat. I mean, he goes on Sway's show and kills it. He's one big hit away from, he needs a catchy chorus and his skills are there. You know, and Macklemore did a great job with him. A young brother I work with named TNT, definitely sharp. I think Seattle's hip hop community is very tight, actually. I think we'll come up with our own sound. You know, not in New York, not a dirty South, not up in Michigan, not, not in LA, just our sound. And I, I can see it coming. We're pretty close. Death Cab for Cutie and Postal Service singer Ben Gibbard. The future of the music in the city will be far less white, far less male, and far less rock and guitar oriented. Rock music and guitar music will always have a place, but the next wave of music from the city that really captures hearts and minds outside of the city will not be rock music made by white dudes. It will be music made by queer people, by people of color, and by women. Josh Rosenfeld. There's some pretty noteworthy electronic music being made. Obviously, Odessa is maybe one of the kind of more well-known artists. Chong the Nomad, who makes some pretty interesting beats and has been doing some remixes, really, really interesting. My guess is that younger musicians who are still able to afford to live in Seattle and in the Seattle area are influenced by the music of the last five or 10 years and are making alt-pop and a lot of electronically based stuff and are making hip hop and are making electronic music more than they're making guitar driven music. I think Perfume Genius, who no longer lives here either, but uh, I think Mike's music is really astounding. 
It's not clear to me why Perfume Genius doesn't live here anymore. Again, I think a lot of this probably has to do with the cost of living for Seattle. And I think that's impacted the ability of Seattle to have the kind of scene that it used to have. I think as time goes by, he will continue to prove himself to be one of the Seattle greats. The spirit of Seattle music is a living, breathing thing, constantly evolving and expanding. And the legacy of the innovators who let the rest of the world in on the city's story will never be erased. That's ensured by histories like Mark Yarm's Everybody Loves Our Town, Stephen Toe's The Strangest Tribe, and Clark Murphy's Loser, The Real Seattle Music Story, by photo books like Karen Mason Blair's The Flannel Years and Charles Peterson's Touch Me, I'm Sick and documentary films like Hype. It's insured by the public profiles of grunge offspring like Francis Bean Cobain, Grace and Mae McKagan, Tony Cornell, and Lily Cornell Silver. Most of all, it's insured by the memories and the music, which still matters. Mark Yarm. I think grunge redefined the parameters of what could be a commercial band Contemporary musicians like the band Waves or somebody like Lana Del Rey cites Nirvana and Hole. Their sonic influence can be heard everywhere. A lot of these bands have become the new classic rock. Post Malone, not very long ago, did a webcast where he performed Nirvana hits that was very well received. So there are contemporary artists who just pick up on it and keep the legacy going. Ben Gibbard. When I now listen back to those bands, be it Nirvana, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, I'm still blown away by just the power of their music. And it makes perfect sense all these years later that these records meant as much to the world as they did. Mike Hadrius, a.k.a. Perfume Genius. What I like about grunge in Seattle is that it's never really left. Nobody ever jokes. It's never become ironic or jokey. Flannel is still worn and it's still very serious. And I think everybody's really um, reverent of that time in music and in that time in general. Michael Goldstone. You know, we can all analyze what that moment in time between those five or six or seven bands did to rock music and alternative music. It became a foundation for further independence and a further defining of independence. and influenced a lot of other bands. It created a platform, I think, in some ways for an incredible output of authentic music, heartfelt music, painful music sometimes. So I think it had a profound impact as a transmitter of freedom and expression and not being boxed in artistically and creatively. You know, in terms of what you wore, what you sang, what you sang about, how you lived. That was a cultural moment. Eva Walker. It's a legacy. And bands like Black Ends, you know, when I first met Nicole, the lead singer of Black Ends, she was like, Eva, I think Nirvana is the greatest band of all time. And artists like Whitney Manger, who's from Seattle, she was inspired by Chris Cornell. You know, just like that stuff carries down and Lane Staley's voice is something that really resonates with me and is a voice that I wish I could have. 
but also a lot of those people have collaborated with us new artists. You know, like we've collaborated with Mike McCready and Shayna's collaborated with Duff McKagan. We're really lucky here in Seattle to be having access to a lot of these veterans here who've been championing us. Their legacy here, which became huge, is just it's great that they had that and that we have access to that as musicians from here. Ben Gibbard. When you come from Seattle, you carry the DNA of everything that came before you within yourself and within your music. Whether or not your music is directly influenced by Sir Mix-a-Lot or Jimi Hendrix or Nirvana or Pearl Jam or whomever. Because there is a particular ethos here that's built in DIY. It's built in punk rock. And it's been that way because for years, the only way to make music would be if you did it yourself, if you found somebody who could help you make your record, if you could press your own records, if you had a friend who was starting a record label. So I think that we all have a little bit of a chip on our shoulder, even if we've achieved success, because Seattle still feels like this outpost in the upper left of the U.S. And while it's become a destination and the internet has certainly created a closeness and a connection that we certainly didn't have growing up, I still feel like the best Northwest musicians have that little chip on their shoulder, have that little regional element to how they view the outside world, the world outside Seattle. Aaron Jones. I consider myself to just be a part of a, a music legacy in Seattle and a continuation of that. I'm going to continue to try to make the scene proud and the legacy of music proud here. I'm going to keep uh, giving it back. I'm going to keep trying to be the, the, the best leader that I can be for this music scene. I'm going to try to represent this music scene the best that I can and keep giving it back and trying to bring other bands up from this area that maybe normally wouldn't have a chance um, to do so. And as for my place, man, I mean, that's yet to be decided. That's for the face to decide. You know, I'll, I'll let everybody else kind of figure that one out. But it's always been my intention ever since I started playing music in Seattle that if I was ever going to make it, I was going to wear Seattle across my chest. Here come the boys from the Puget Sound Can you hear me? been listening to Breaking Waves, Seattle, the story of the scene that defined rock in the 90s. Breaking Waves was produced by Odyssey and Osiris Media. For Odyssey, the executive producers of Breaking Waves are Tim Murphy and Corey Podolsky. The creative directors are Dave Richards, Leslie Scott, and Ryan Castle. For Osiris Media, the executive producers are RJB, Kirsten Cluthy, and Brad Stratton. The show was produced by Brian Brinkman and written by Jim Allen. Edit and mix by Brad Stratton and narration by Ryan Castle. To find more great content like Breaking Waves Seattle, please download the Odyssey app on your mobile device or visit Odyssey. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y dot com. 